don't have words for something, you literally don't see them. And I remember this experience over the course of the three years, learning the names of the birds, like learning the names of the different plants and like things that were invisible before suddenly were everywhere. Like my experience of the place was radically changed. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Navid Madavian, author of the graphic novel, This Country, Searching for Home in Very Rural America. Before Navid moved with his wife and dog in November of 2016 from San Francisco to an off-the-grid cabin in rural Idaho, he had never fished, gardened, hiked, hunted, or lived in a snowy place. Over the next three years, Navid leaned into the wonders of the natural Idaho landscape and found himself adjusting to and enjoying a slower pace of living. But beyond the boundaries of his six acres, he was confronted with the realities of America's political shifts and forced to confront the question, do I belong here? Navid Madavian has been a contributing cartoonist at The New Yorker since 2018. His work has also been published in Reader's Digest, Wired, and Alta Online, as well as collected in the books The Rejection Collection and Send Help. Navid was born in Miami and now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. Navid, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to The Right Question. Yeah, thank you for having me. I want to first talk about your illustrations. This novel is fully black and white, but your drawing rural Idaho landscapes, the Rocky Mountains. Is this particular style, the style your readers encounter in this country, your style? Or is this a style specifically born of this particular story? Definitely born of this story. Prior to writing the book, I predominantly drew cartoons for The New Yorker. Um, So I think that if you're familiar with my New Yorker cartoons, you would see Um, a similarity between those and the book, but there was a lot that I had to figure out. I didn't study art. Um, I was a fifth grade teacher, so I definitely got my 10,000 hours in while writing the book. And particularly the landscapes was something that I had to figure out how to draw. Um, So there were countless hours of uh, doodling and figuring out how to draw mountains, how to draw trees and mountains, uh, how to draw birds and uh, the flora and fauna. Um, So there were lots of new things, new skills that I had to pick up while while writing it. And what did that process look like? Did you look to other cartoonists and graphic novels to see how other people sort of translated the landscape or did you look to other art forms? I mean, I immediately thought this is a person who's drawing the American West. You know, there's photographs like Ansel Adams, these people who mm-hmm. are are using black and white photography to capture the landscape. I'm wondering about that process for you. Yeah, uh, I used generally I use reference photos when there's something that I'm not sure how to draw. Uh, look at a photo, figure out how to draw it, and then add it to my toolbox. And I don't have to do that afterwards. 
So I used a range of different references um, from photos to cartoonists to fine artists. One of the people who I used, I leaned on a lot, was Christoph Niemann. Uh, he's a fine painter, um, but his drawings are very simplistic, but express so much. And I knew that with my drawing capabilities, I wasn't going to be able to do something that was like really realistic. And I feel like cartooning lends itself to these more simplistic drawings, you want to be able to dash off. Like, you know, a few lines can express like trees in the distance, birds in the distance. Um, and so for this, I knew I wanted to lean into that. And there were certain illustrations that had to be more detailed when it's not just the background, when the character of Navid is bending over and looking at gooseberries or, uh, you know, particular tracks. Uh, there had to be more detailed drawings. And for those, it was usually photos. And I would figure out how to translate that into um, an illustration. There's actually this one great um, exchange I had with a woman who is from the area. She's in her 60s. And she was an acquaintance of mine, has a very brief uh, appearance in the book, just one panel. And she told me on Facebook that she got the book. And I was like, eh, let me know what you think. Not many people at the time from the town itself had read it. And she said that she loved it, that um, she thought it was funny. Um, but she said that there was one image in particular that when she saw it, she got teary-eyed. It's a photo of this three cowboys looking over some cattle in uh, this, the landscape. It's in the Copper Basin, which is this uh, national park that's near where our house was and she said as soon as she saw it she got teary-eyed because that's her dad her granddad and her uncle and it was a photo that had been taken for national geographic wow. um so uh it was it was neat because i did use some reference photos uh and it, it just i think reinforced how much um this place, even though I was there for a few years and I felt like I had this insider's perspective, this was her home. This is this, you know, the people there, their home. They've been there for generations and just reinforced how I had to approach writing the book with sensitivity. And you said or you say at the very beginning of this country, you write that you wanted to become a cartoonist. And you said mm -hmm. just a few minutes ago that you have prior to writing this country, you were a New Yorker cartoonist. Yeah. I'm wondering, Navid, what drew you to cartoons? I'm curious about that trajectory for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I was always a, a doodler. Um, and I, I think every artist will say that their particular medium is the sort of highest art form. And it is a hill that I will die on that cartooning is the highest art form. <laughs> because um, with just like a few lines, maybe a caption, you can tell this whole story. But I knew that the, the types of stories you can tell can be limited. And so uh, graphic memoir seemed like the natural next step because the types of stories you could that you can tell much more expansive um, stories. But having always been a doodler, New Yorker cartooning seemed like the natural like outlet for my particular type of humor. Um I, I remember there was a website uh, that used to review New Yorker cartoons and they hated my cartoons. They gave my first cartoon a one out of six. They said it was dead upon arrival. Oh, no. uh, that it demonstrated the, I, I can remember all of the critiques. They're just like seared into my brain. But I remember one of them, uh, it was my third cartoon in the magazine and they gave it a three out of six. So it was a step up. <laughs> and they said, um, 
high-minded, Czech, funny, sort of, which I think is a nice sort of like summation of my, my, my sense of humor. And, and I think of like New Yorker cartoons in general, I feel like that's like the joke is that New Yorker <laughs> cartoons aren't like funny, even though I think that they, they are. I mean, that's why I do them. Um, but it just seemed like the, a natural outlet for, for the types of, I, I wanted to tell jokes. Um, it's something that I, I do. And, uh, it also felt like the, entry level like the requirements for drawing weren't that high but that was the the the, the misconception it's deceptively hard um and even the, the the drawing styles there's a range in the new yorker the ones that seem to be more simple it's 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 always deceptive they're they're so much more um complex than they, than they appear you said just a moment ago the character navid and i'm curious about how a cartoonist writes or draws himself is the navid that you're writing and drawing in this country. Is that the real Navid? Or is it something like a caricature or a, a, a literal cartoon yeah. of Navid? I'm, I'm wondering about that that idea. Yeah. Um, there's something about uh, the medium that I think lends itself to memoir. Um, the majority of graphic novels that I've read have been memoirs. And I think it's because you have this avatar, this visual representation of the author, the narrator, um, to guide you through the story. It's naturally going to be very intimate and and personal. Um, But in, in the process of writing it, and I think that this may just be the process of writing memoir, uh, whether it's illustrated or prose, there is like the character. And so when I sat down to write the book, I had to think about, well, what is the arc of of the character? What's the arc of of Emily, of um, each of the people who I met there who ended up becoming characters? I think while I was in Idaho, I wasn't thinking about myself as like sort of like the hero's journey, starting off as the sort of the bumbling idiot and then like developing this relationship with nature and then eventually, you know, spoiler alert, deciding to to leave after a few years. But I think when you're sitting down to write, you have to think about it in those terms. And so I think anybody who knows me will read the book and immediately see uh, an accurate representation of me. But I definitely did lean into um, certain qualities that helped to make the book more humorous. Um, as I said, like the character at the beginning is like the, the the bumbling idiot moves out there, doesn't know what he's doing, uh, but slowly learns about the landscape, learns about the people, um, becomes a member of the, the community. So definitely me, but a, um, but a character uh, who has sort of a clear arc, which I think... I don't know. I think everybody maybe thinks that they're the hero of their own story. But, you know, when I sat down to write it, I had to think about, well, what does that look like? Let's talk about this story, this narrative that you're drawing here. You and your wife moved to rural Idaho uh, from the San Francisco area in 2016. Mm-hmm. What expectations did you have of the Rocky Mountain West when you had the idea to move out here? I, I mean, I think our expectation was that we were this was going to be our forever home. We were moving somewhere that we would be able to to stay, you know, and to to develop something that would become our our home. Um, I th- I think going in, it was a bit romantic, you know, maybe a little naive. Looking back in retrospect, it seems even more 
so. But we had gone out the summer before um, on a whim to this area. Neither of us had been to Idaho. The mountains, I mean, are just majestic. Every time I show anybody a picture of our home, like immediately they get why we moved there. It's just so picturesque. And it just, you know, this, the myth of freedom and space and America, that, that, that was it. Um, and so when we moved out there, we understood that it would be a shift. We're both city people. Neither of us had lived in a small town and this was a very small town. The nearest town was 500 people. We were 20 minutes outside of it. Um, but I think our goal was to create something that where, you know, where we were self-reliant, we were off the grid where even if we couldn't become members of the community, and this was also in 2016. So right after Trump had been elected, I'm in a, and I'm a middle Eastern American. Um, so I didn't know fully what, what to expect, but we thought, even worst case scenario, we would have space that we could uh, homestead on, become artists, uh, that would be separate from everything else. And then when or what did it feel like, inevitably, when those expectations were maybe not shattered, but as you've been talking about, a little bit fractured, that your expectations were shifted or you began to realize what your experience in this new place was going to be and would continue to be. What did that feel like for you and your family? I mean, it was hard. I mean, most of the encounters and the relationships that we developed while we were there were positive. People were welcoming and kind. And I think that in a small town, you have to lean on your neighbors. So we would help our neighbors when we could. They were much more knowledgeable and handy than than we were. So um, we leaned on them more than uh, they did us. But there were these moments of of discomfort where it, you know, it did cause me to think about like, is this where I want to to be? You know, there, there, there's a moment in the book where I'm having this pleasant conversation with this older couple in the local beer slash coffee slash bait slash tackle shop. And as the woman Ruth is getting up to leave, she asks, can I ask you a question? And I say, sure. And she says, you're not a Muslim, are you? And it was one of those moments where I'm confronted with the fact that I I am a minority, I do look different. I grew up in Miami and then moved to the Bay Area where I never had to have that experience. And so in the book, I reflect upon, well, what was it about me that caused her to ask that question? And it's my my physical appearance, right? My face says something about me before I've said anything to the, the people within this, this community. And in that scene, I... Um, I realize, I think about the the first time I saw a photo of my mother as a teenager, and I, there was this sort of shock, this this feeling of foreignness. And I realized it's because she has black hair, and I've never seen her with black hair because she's dyed it ever since I could remember. And I have a conversation with my mom where I ask her, did you dye your hair because you were trying to assimilate? And she says, no. Um, but it was this experience of having to think about myself in a way that I never had to. And I think it was lots of these little experiences that over the course of the three years added up. And it was when we had our daughter. Uh, My wife is a white American, and so my daughter is multiracial. Um, It was having my daughter 
that made me reflect upon these experiences of alienation. And my wife and I, in discussing whether we should stay or not, we recognize that in choosing to stay, we would be making this decision for our daughter. Like, we're okay with having these moments of alienation, but by staying, we might be subjecting her to it. And maybe that's not what we wanted to do. So in large part, it was the reason why we ended up leaving. You're listening to a conversation with cartoonist Navid Madavian, author of This Country, Searching for Home in Very Rural America. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode is sponsored by Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana, a literary and community resource for the Bitterroot Valley, providing space to explore, discover, and share passions since 1974. More information can be found at chapteronebookstore.com. I'm wondering, can you point to any changes that you made in this new space in order to belong in a way that you perhaps naturally didn't feel like you did? Yeah, I think um, there were certain ways that I knew, like I knew I couldn't talk politics with my friends. There were a couple of friends who we made out there in the book, Nathan and Sophia, who were liberals and we were able to talk. They were from the area, but... um, we were able to talk politics with them, but many of the other people in the book, like there's the character of Josiah, who is this wonderful cowboy who I I befriend, but I knew that I just, I can't talk politics with him because I assumed we would have very different views and I didn't want to jeopardize our friendship because we had developed something that was, that was wonderful. Um, sure. So I knew that I couldn't talk politics with many people uh, while I was there. And so there were these uh, moments where Emily, she felt much more comfortable having conversations about politics. And it may be because she is um, white or because she just, I, I don't know what, but like, I just, whenever <laughs> those conversations came up, I kind of like receded into, into myself. Um, and and I, I think that that was a difficult experience because it's not something that I typically shy away from. I do have opinions, uh, particularly during the Trump presidency that first year, the you know the Muslim ban stuff. It was hard not to be able to engage in these conversations with people who are voting district ninety percent voted for Trump, so people who probably did agree with him on many of these issues. I wish I, I could have had those conversations, but I definitely didn't feel um, comfortable. And, th- and there there were moments where I, it also felt unsafe to have those conversations. Like that moment where Ruth asks, you're not a Muslim, are you? It's one of those moments that I think about so often. Like occasionally when I'm lying in bed trying to fall asleep, it'll pop into my mind and I'll go over all of the things like I wish I would have said to her uh, that I obviously did not say because I... I don't think anything would have happened to me, but there is a particular experience of being the one brown person in the room of white people, all of whom probably agree with one another. There's another moment in the book where I'm with my neighbor, Jim, and we're visiting his friend, John, and they're talking politics and using really offensive language. And I just kind of shrink. And I definitely don't feel like I can say anything in that moment. And there is a lot of shame that I feel I, I I have with that because I wish I would have felt comfortable saying something. I, I did some work 
after teaching for the Anti-Defamation League, where I would do anti-bullying workshops in schools. And one of the things we would talk about is being like an upstander and not a bystander. So when people say offensive things, what are the things you can say? And I remember like working with the teenagers and the elementary school students on practicing these things. And here I was having these experiences where people are using really offensive language, where they are saying racist things. And I'm just like clamming up and feel entirely powerless and uncomfortable to to say anything. But I also do feel like these moments of silence where I'm not saying anything, I was saying something by being quiet. And they're in that scene with Jim and John after we leave Jim, who I have become friends with, we're in the car and he, I'm silent and he recognizes, I I think he picks up on that and he's like, well, that's just what we call them here as if to excuse using the, the N word. But I think it was my silence. And this was an, ex- an experience that I had multiple times where somebody would say something and then I would say nothing in response. And they'd be like, oh, like, sorry, that probably sounded racist. Um, so even though I didn't feel comfortable voicing my opinion, um, I think that there was at least the experience for them of somebody not immediately agreeing, which hopefully had had a lasting impact. So I think... That was a very long way of saying, I think one of the, 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 the main ways was, was shrinking in these moments. And it's not something that I usually do in other scenarios. I want to talk about the landscapes or the landscape that you are on during the breadth of this book or, or most of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a spread early on wherein you write about snow, your boots crunching and compressing the tiny granules. You write, the land operates on my body. You repeat this line in the epilogue of the book, too. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, Navid, what did you mean by returning to that line and by including that line? And how might that line in particular, because you return to it, sort of encompass the whole of this book? When I moved there, I didn't anticipate how much the landscape would have an effect on my experience of being there. Um, I'm like a city boy through and through. And even now that I've like moved out of the city, people ask like, has that had like a lasting effect on you? And it's like, I appreciate the outdoors from like my climate control department where I'm inside (laughs) drawing and like looking at the snow. Like I feel like no need to like go and explore the mountains. And I did a lot of that in those three years. And I think that it was something that was very particular to the experience of, of being in that place. We had a tiny house on six acres. And when we first moved out there, we didn't really have any neighbors. So it was just, it really felt like hundreds of acres to explore and you are at the whims of the the weather and the landscape so our first winter got down to negative 37 i didn't know it could get that cold neither of our cars would start we very quickly ran out of wood i didn't know that you had to season wood and so our house for that first winter was just full of wood that we were very desperately trying to to dry out um And it was just a very different experience of engaging with the world. I think that cities have this way of flattening time and space. Like you go from point A to point B, where there, there's just, you can amble, you can explore. Um, I talk about in the book, like learning the different names of the moons, because like I, I finally got like the pink moon is when you plant flocks and I, you know, planted flocks and like the strawberry moon is because the strawberries are ready to be harvested and I harvested the strawberries. And it was just this very different experience of time and space that uh, was new to me. And when I say that the land operates on the body, 
it was more than just you know learning the the calls of the the birds which i got into before it was like cool in the pandemic <laughs> but like you you're you're stuck in the house you're waiting for spring and then you finally see the canadian geese and you know that you can go outside and i mentioned in, in the book i quote robert mcfarlane who is this uh, wonderful travel writer and naturalist and uh, the passage I describe, I, I quote in that that chapter is about how being in cities, we forget that we make tracks because asphalt is not easily, um, Im- you know, imprinted upon. Um, but he he has this other book called The Lost Words, uh, where he was reading about how the Oxford English Dictionary for Kids had removed a bunch of words in order to put in new words like email and things like that, which are important. But most of the words that had been removed were like acorn and hazelnut and words that were sort of around nature. And he was like, what a loss. Like if you don't have words for something, you literally don't see them. And I remember this experience over the course of the three years, learning the names of the birds, like learning the names of the different plants and like things that were invisible before suddenly were everywhere. Like my experience of the place was radically changed. Like I, I was able to actually like see the landscape, experience it differently over the course of the few years as I learned the names of the, the animals and the plants and just explored and leaned on my neighbors who had been there for you know their entire lives and had this collective shared embodied knowledge. You write in the middle of this country, who owns this country? And I'm wondering if that question, who owns this country, is this a question you're still pondering in other work or just as you live in a, a different part of the Rocky Mountain West? I'm curious about what that, that question or how that question sits with you now. Yeah, so that, that question is posed in um, a chapter where my friends Nathan and Sophia and I, we we go to see these pictographs, the sheep eaters Shoni, their pictographs. And it's this experience of, of of seeing artwork that has you know been around for for a long time, um, and this recognition that nobody who is living there, you know, they're not the first ones there. And in that chapter, um, I'm confronted with this 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 poster that um, in the the local hardware store that I go to all the time. It appears one day, and it, it and and the, the 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 gist of it is, you know, we like the way it is here the way it is. And if you don't like it, then you're free to leave at any point. So if like you don't like it, then you can leave. Um, and so I, I think that there are these these competing narratives. And I wanted to explore in that that section, this idea of, of who owns this country, which also I think is a very Western idea of, of owning, uh, owning the land. But, you know, when Emily and I moved there, we had a story of the place that we were telling, right? It was this romantic image of the, the West and homesteading and going out on your own and meeting kooky characters. Uh, we're big fans of Northern Exposure, which I don't know if you've seen, you know, classic story of, you know, Jewish doctor moving up to Alaska. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Grew up on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, I think in some sense, the, the, our, our, the story that we were telling about moving to this place. And, you know, the, the, the guy who managed the hardware store when he put up the sign of, you don't like it, you can leave. The irony being that he moved there after us. He wasn't from there. And but he had this story of, of what this place, this place was. And I think that even though I'm not living there anymore, just reading the news of the day, right? Things have, I feel like, only got more politically divided. And at at its heart is these this the, these competing stories about what is America. And so yeah, I mean I'm still 
participating, I think, still thinking about those those questions. And I'm thinking about it more as the you know 2024 election is coming up. And I th- I think one of the great things of having lived in very rural America. The, the friendships that I made there in those moments when I'm thinking about like all the craziness that's happening politically, I lean on those friendships and remember these kind people who were very dear to me, who who held those beliefs that I, you know, didn't agree with or who I might even find like, like abhorrent. That was cartoonist Navid Madavian, author of This Country, Searching for Home in Very Rural America, out now from Princeton Architectural Press. Look for more information about Navid at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Aiden McMahon engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.